Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses and mentorship. For more info, check out tkex.org. And today, I'm lucky enough to be joined once again by Alex Murray from Making Sense in Podiatry. So the first podcast, we dove into some of the misconceptions and myths that podiatrists generally encounter in their practice. So we looked at foot posture, we looked at biomechanics, and we talked about load management. So today I want to get Alex back for a bit of a deeper dive into a concept that is very prominent in, in musculoskeletal practice, reductionism. So it's, um, it's a complex topic. So we'll probably start off with defining a few, a few things so Alex, first of all, thank you again for, for making the time to join us again. All right. Thank, thanks for having me, Dan. So if we were to start with a, a definition, what is reductionism in, in the sense of our practice? So probably, I think that's the key point. There's a difference between if we were to talk about reductionism as a bigger concept or in healthcare. Um, probably starting bigger concept is really just reductionism is just reducing something down. Uh, and if we were to look at it from a standpoint, it's just trying to understand the world through breaking it down into smaller pieces, which makes complete sense. Uh, when you're trying to take a big complex topic, it always says, you know, you've got a big task, break it down, got a complex topic, break it down into smaller pieces. Uh, the issue that we think, and the big sort of talking point around how we apply that into healthcare is the way that we put those pieces back together. Uh, and it's simply a case of we break things down. So we talk about musculoskeletal system, we talk about muscles, and we break it down and we, or we break the body down into these smaller parts. And we assume that they fit back together in a specific way without any information to say that they do. And generally, the way that we do that is we assume it's the sum of its parts, that the muscle plays 60% of a role, it's the tendon that plays 30% of the role, it's the nerves that play 10%, and it fits this sort of pattern when we've got a lot of evidence to say that it's not how, how the body works. It's a bit more yeah, nuanced, and it's a bit more complex than that. And I, I wonder if, if the, the whole, the need for a specific diagnosis might play into that what's what are your thoughts on on the diagnosis and finding out a specific kind of source of of someone's entire experience so like a, a big issue with reductionism is is assumptions you have to assume uh that things are, are stable or you have to assume that uh there's a, something has a certain value uh or may or may not be related so when we think about diagnosis uh, especially the need for a specific diagnosis, often you're given only so much information in the first session or there's only so much you can do. So to reach a diagnosis, you're essentially reducing everything that's important or what you think is important, you're reducing it all down to just what you can see. And you can say, well, what you can test um, or what the patient tells you in that first 10, 15 minutes. And you just have to assume that that's everything. So when we think about specific diagnosis, I always, especially in the, in the first sort of session, I get really worried because I go, well, how do you know enough information? Are you making assumptions or are you reducing things 
down, like their pain might equal damage. That's a, a, a common reductionism uh, or, or um, problem with reductionism that we've seen for many, many years in the same way that we could assume that their, um, or reduce their concept of ankle joint flexibility down to their result of one test at one point in time. Yeah, and I guess there's probably the, the demand for having that specific answer because it, it makes you appear like you, you know exactly what to do for that person. So, so I wonder if there's some kind of societal expectations and expectations from other providers that people have had in the past and the entire context of being with a medical professional that they, they need that specific diagnosis and we need to find out uh, the, the sole cause. So we're reducing the entire picture into pinpointing one thing, one exact thing. And, and I think the thing that we, that we should point out at the top and, and it's the reason why I always sort of pop up and go, no, that's being reductionist all the time. I'm sort of like fallacy man on, 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 on Facebook and, and uh, Instagram is that it's not a bad thing to do and we do it all the time. And often it's a case of, well, it makes sense to do that or there's assumptions. I mean, if you were to build a car, you assume that gravity is going to be the same thing. You're going to assume it's driving on a road. These are just things that you have to do in the same way that someone comes in with pain. You can sort of go, well, I'm going to assume that they're going to want uh, certain components or someone comes in um, with, with really anything. We can sort of go, we, we, we can make some assumptions. The problem is, is when we don't challenge those assumptions or don't challenge societal pressure and say, well, and, and find a sort of solutions as well. Or probably a, a good way to think about it is we reduce someone's cry for help or coming to see us as a need for a solution when there may actually be other questions down the track, which um, are probably more important and the reason why they might come in quite distressed. Uh, a classic example is that a gentleman come in with a lot of heel pain, had it for a long time, uh, and it recently gotten a lot worse. And, you know, we talked through a lot of the, you know, explain pain narratives and, and that sort of thing about, you know, what he did wrong. And really the, the key point that he, that I missed and was that he was really, really not understanding it was that sudden increase in activity and re that, that really set him off. We didn't highlight that. And I reduced too much of what, what he, or his desire for a, an explanation to really just needing something slightly different rather than a full explanation or needing a specific treatment. Mm. So it's kind of uh, meeting them where they are, meeting that some of the expectations, but also looking at uh, not making it kind of too, too reductionist in a way that negates or doesn't take into account all the various factors that could be in, at play. So what are some of the, um, the, these assumptions that you mentioned some examples of, of reducing uh, uh, a presentation into, into just one course? Probably not a specific presentation, but I, one of the things that really sort of clicked me on early into this sort of message uh, was actually one of these students that I had come to the clinic and, and spend some time doing their private practice placement. And I said, you know, he goes, you know, how do you like to practice? Or he's asking some general questions. And I said, I really like to take stock of like the whole patient I like to look beyond and I said beyond the foot um, just as an example and um, he shot back and said what well, so, so we look at hips now I've, I haven't learned hip anatomy and so it was just the immediate sort of when we t say looking at the big picture um, 
it's the media sort of saying, well, we've reduced the body down to or what's important in musculoskeletal um, problems or, or injuries is only um, musculoskeletal components that um, the musculoskeletal system, if there's a problem, it only happens within that system. When we know that not being true, we see lots of uh, conditions like NeoA uh, has a presentation for a lot of people can have central sensitization components. We know that tendinopathy, the, the way that a tendon appears on a scan is an indicative of whether it's painful or not painful or how or the severity of the pain. We know catastrophization and kinesiophobia are, are big um, drivers of disability, um, but they're not inside the musculoskeletal system but it's just sort of pairing that down uh, to just that makes things less complicated for us. We can just go, oh, we can just focus on the muscles, the tendons, the bones, how they all fit together. And we like that explanation because it's simple, um, but it's not taking in, into case or taking in, into mind wider factors that may actually have an impact. And I, I wonder if we've been trained to think that way from the start, from, from university days, so I, I recall last weekend in, in Canberra that we had a lot of, um, so we ran a course uh, there and we had a lot of existential crises in the room. We needed to um, comfort a few people because they were seriously uh, angry and pissed off that kind of they weren't taught the entire spectrum of, of the literature when it comes to things like lifting technique and when it comes to things like posture and, and, and core. And, and it, it makes sense because we've been led down a uh, very reductionist pathway from the start for, for at least four years. So what's been your experience coming over that, that hurdle and, and going through that process of knowing that maybe we needed to, we need to reflect and look, look at the whole picture. It's, it's funny that you talk about existential crises because I actually had one uh, April 2018 on, on a explain pain course and um, David Butler had to take me aside. I'm just like, mate, like, what do I do with all this shit? Like, you've just blown up my world. I don't think I can go back to work on Monday. Um, and I think there, there definitely is a, a process of being at university and they need to have answers to a test. And one of the easiest ways to, to create answers is to block everything else out that doesn't or, or reduce your focus down to a certain component. Um, I guess my my biggest sort of way of I've been finding is, is breaking out of of that sort of mindset and it's been I, I should highlight a very sort of slow adaptive process over time um, but I, I sort of always give it an example of I look at patients as, as black holes um, and my goal is to guide them to a better outcome and um, what what I try and do is go, well, they've come in and this black hole comes in and it's spit out a whole bunch of this information and it's spitting out all these bits of information and my sort of way of sort of thinking, I'm chucking things back in and seeing what happens and I've got a whole bunch of literature that tells me in a lot of different circumstances, maybe these things happen and this is where we should go but I'm, I'm still always looking at, at guiding and trying to find pathways of least resistance to move them from you know, their problem to, to somewhere else and that can look very, very different for people as well. So I always ask lots of questions. What are people, you know, what are people concerned about? I say, look, this might sound like a stupid question. You've said you've come in for X problem. What is it about, the, about it that's giving you trouble? And we can just start to then not only collect more information, but there's also less pressure of having to solve it. You're not trying to 
um, fix something, you're just trying to uh, guide a direction. If if that sort of makes a lot uh, makes a bit of sense. Yeah, yeah. So we're and it, it actually kind of liberates us from not needing to to be the expert and the all knowing kind of um, the authority figure in in the picture where we're just reflecting back on what the person is saying. We're looking at the entire subjective uh, history when we're looking at a thorough objective assessment and then we're, we're kind of nudging them towards what they want. So their goals and we're asking different questions that uh, delve deeper into that person's concerns and, and looking at their expectations. So if we were to compare, I know I can give a few examples of my kind of subjective questionnaires from 2014. If we compare some of your kind of initial um, assessment forms, how do they look and what kind of questions were you centered around compared to now? Um, well, I think, and podiatry sort of really does suffer from this in, in the way that we're taught. Like I don't blame individuals for, for practicing in this way, but we are taught essentially that the posture is, is a factor um, and that the way that the foot and leg move are important, uh, impact everything essentially so if someone has pain then it must be important then if someone because it's the pain's occurring within that system the way that that muscle moves um, so my forms were especially starting out were very very biomechanics heavy a lot of the questions you know we wouldn't ask someone we would we would just go well this is important this this has to be important this is what we're here to fix and we kind of just put the patient to the side and sort of said well our role here is is really just um you know, changing the way that you move. It's got nothing to do with you um, to a certain degree. I mean, I, the, I was very lucky in the practice that I was in was always about handling the patient as well, but it was sort of seen as two very separate issues. It's uh, here's, here's what we're actually doing and here's the magic on the side that's kind of tricking people, well, not so much tricking, but guiding people to use what we're doing, um, but they were still not seen as integrative components. We weren't sort of uh, looking at people as... Um, kinesiophobic and needing to guide them back to movement we were just assuming that hey they're scared this is going to help them this is what we're going to help you and, and sort of trying to get them to to do the movement themselves it wasn't anything anything else but besides that and it's funny i think i i still come across that kind of rationale and line of thinking that yes we're taking into consideration these these different factors and maybe this is a hidden rant in here some somewhere but I wonder there's a few kind of, you can, you can still do the same things that you've been doing um, in terms of keeping it very pathanatomical, biomechanical, um, reducing the body into parts, treating the, the patient as a machine, and then still using our knowledge of, of the multifactorial nature of pain, relating that fix or that specific cue or that specific intervention as the solution to, like you said, their kinesiophobia, their, their lack of, their inability to go back to their meaningful social activities, their lack of conditioning, their unhelpful beliefs, and that's all solved by this one little fix. So we can still have a kind of fix, fixer mentality with this multifactorial uh, knowledge. Have you seen much of a gap or any change in, in your practice or from what you've seen and heard through your, through your studies, through your courses and practice? Yeah, I think, I, I think what, what, we're sort of, what you're sort of getting at is, is the fundamental sort of misunderstanding of, of what a biopsychosocial model is. 
Um, it's why I like the word inactive because it's just one word. You can't split it into, into in different components. It doesn't have different title headings. Um, inactive just being that everything kind of is, is sort of stuck together like Play-Doh. You can't, you know, you've put blue and red together. You've got purple. You can't break them apart. You have to deal with them as one. Uh, I guess it's always a struggle to try and sort of think about things um, in, a, in a complex way so much of what we do day to day we try as humans to make things easier it's where some i always keep going back to assumptions it's that sort of thinking fast and thinking slow the faster we think the more automatic we make things um the easier it is cognitively on us so it is a tricky sort of process but it's 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 essentially trying to understand that and this is where the Neu group i think does really well with their garden analogy is that we're we're always we can't ever sort of split things apart everything's always an ecosystem a garden and while we can do things that have lots of different effects we can't always predict what's going to happen uh, and that's sort of a big 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 problem we one of the things that we reduce down is is our idea of um linear reactions so we, we expect that the greater something is, the more I do, or the, 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 the larger the, the knee valgus, for example, is the classic one, the worse the outcome will be. Um, and part of sort of where I see people struggle, uh, especially with applying a biopsychosocial model, is they, they think exactly the same thing. The more stress there is, the more of a problem. The less sleep, the more of a problem. The more sleep, um, the better it is when we actually see sleep's a classic example uh, too much and too little are a problem. Uh, we look at dynamic knee valgus and ACL injuries, and we we very clearly see that that only it only really matters if there's also generally hip weakness um, in uh, this is in basketball players where the study was was done. And there's you can sort of change one part, but you don't have to change another. The, the dynamic knee valgus has a relationship with something else that indicates whether it's useful or not, but to reduce things down to just that knee valgus in the same way that we reduce, try and take a complex topic like psychology or sociology and try and distill it down into good, bad. Um, I always sort of talk about sneezing is a, is a classic one I talk about with patients where, you know, a sneeze isn't good or bad. Uh, a sneeze can be for hay fever uh, or it can be any sort of sneezes is, is getting something out of you that, that really shouldn't be there, some sort of mucus. Um, if it's from hay fever, it's, it's uh, seen as often a good thing. You know, you're sneezing out that, that pathogen or it can be seen as a, a bad thing because your body's overreacting to something. You could look at the same thing with a cold. It, it's, it's good because it's clearing out mucus and things that your body needs to eject, but it's bad because it could be spreading a disease. Um, and we do the same thing with pain. Good, is it good? Um, is it bad? Um, we kind of go always one or the other. We're never sort of understanding that pain will mean different things to different people. And probably the biggest thing when we think about, a bi well, I think about a biopsychosocial model when trying to break out of this sort of reduction, reductionism is, which is ingrained, it's normal. But to break out of it, I sort of just go, don't assume anything. Ask people these questions and be vulnerable. Because if you're being vulnerable and you say to someone, look, you know, so what, how does this, you know, how, what is exactly is, is giving you trouble with this? I know this is a silly question, but I'd like to know about how this is making you feel or what you think is a solution. And you sort of put yourself out there because you're not assuming 
what their what they want their outcome to be and you find out a lot of more information and it makes it easier to guide it makes it easier to see how things fit together but i think we we sort of trick ourselves into thinking that we should have the answers or know all the answers and that already if you're not asking a patient what they want or what they expect you're already down the pathway and then you just keep going down and down and down you go oh man they're real stress head they just they keep looking for a solution they keep looking for a solution they're so solution focused and i can't provide that solution i try and tell them there is no solution and it's like well that might not be what they're looking for they might actually just be looking for reassurance understanding the natural history they've just coming to expressing that it's a solution because someone has told them that there should be one it's awesome how the the power of pre-framing and the the impact that the their prior expectations their prior experiences has on on their current expectations and their current experience and yet it's it's funny and just touching on the the inactive model i i wonder if we replaced everything bps as just inactive how if there might be any difference because you're right it's a there's the, the connotation of biopsychosocial as being three parts. Whenever we say it, we don't go biopsychosocial, we say biopsychosocial. So I wonder if, if that would kind of nudge people towards understanding that we can't separate the, the three components. We can't separate the, the person with their valgus, with their biomechanics, with their, their entire context. So if they're in a sporting team or if they're going back home into an unhelpful, an unhelpful kind of social environment or there's a work cover compensation claim and their employer is not really supportive. So that's the, the context. And then we look at their, their thoughts, their feelings, their, their anxieties as part of the whole picture. So it's, I imagine that can be a bit overwhelming. I know it was for me, I don't know about you, with taking into account all these factors and maybe asking deeper questions kind of helps us guide the process because in a way we don't have all the answers. So what's been, how have your kind of, you mentioned a few questions already with asking about expectations. What other questions do you find helpful in that process in, in a subjective or even during an, an objective for helping people nudge them towards uh, finding solutions versus just looking for a specific quick fix? I guess before before I give some questions, I'll probably jump on what you what you said there with the inactive model and taking into a lot of context. Um, I, that is definitely overwhelming, and that's where I think a lot of people get struggled on or, or struggle with. And I think part of the issue that we might run into practicing any of these sort of models is thinking that if we've got to think about something, it's something we've got to change. And so I, I kind of like the psychology model of how do we build more resilient human beings? You know, my role as a psychologist might be, is going to be not about fixing you, it's about trying to make you more resilient um, is, is what like, I hear a lot of psychologists say. They kind of go, you know, my role is not to fix anything and there's because there's often nothing broken. These are normal processes running their course in an ab, not so much an, even an abnormal way, but in a way that is not as helpful to you and you don't have the tools to help manage that. So when we take into account that sort of idea into practice and we think about um, questions, I think that sort of gives us a real kickstart into the direction. It's what would, you know, if we're dealing with a complex, you know, chronic sort of problem, it's like what would make this 
more bearable for you. We know that this is something that that may not change. Let's take, you know, Louis Gifford. I recently read his um, description of um, sciatica and he was talking about it's a, it's a normal process, this squeezing of the nerve. And for some reason, it's now become, you know, sciatica. It's now your body's overreacting to this. It's often going to take a natural course. You know, there's some questions easy. You know, what would make this more bearable? What's the big limitation that you're having now? Um, what could we do to make it easier? What do you expect um, from from us? Um, what do you what, what are your expectations for this condition? There's all these sort of questions that we can ask. That sort of if we go, my role is to find ways to help you manage this better, not to fix all of these sort of components. And I think that's another sort of massive uh, assumption or, or reduction. We assume anything that we measure or have to take into account has to change rather than just simply being there as an, exp as, as an explainer. And I, I def we definitely see this, for example, with the tendon load response model. We see that there's a, a paradoxical relationship between load where sometimes it can be really good, build strength, and sometimes it's not. And so if we were to look at anything good, bad, it's uh, a case of, well, that's just not true. Um, it depends upon the context. So asking questions around a a person coming in and going, so how do I make you be able or get you to a position where you're more resilient to handle these loads? Um, that would be a bigger component. So if it's someone who's trying to keep training, it's, we want to keep you training. What do you think is your biggest barrier? Well, actually the pain is stopping me on these types of drills um, more than my long run. I'm finding this, the shorter, more intense runs. Well, we know you have a tendon problem. We know that, um, you know, it, it more intense climatic sort of loads, fast paces might sometimes start to slow and you start to then find ways in that you might not um, always. I think the connection kind of cut off at the very end. If, if Alex, if you can still hear me, if you could just repeat the yes. that final part, just the connection kind of cut off. And, and I, I blame. What, 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 did I, what did I get up to? I got up to the, the tendons and how it depends on certain things where load can be a bit too much in a, in a scenario for say a drill, but a long run it's, it's, they're still able to continue on with that activity. Mm. So it's, 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 we know if we take, if we look at people as resilient people and we're trying to make them more resilient to overcome it, it's identifying and asking those questions. What's, what's giving you the most trouble training? What's something that we could remove or if was something that we could manage better, what would be the way to do it? And they might come in and Lorena might come in and say, it's this part of my training or it's that part of my training, like a shorter, more intense runs, I find are more painful than longer runs or vice versa. And we can start to sort of identify areas that we can potentially help, whether that be through, if they're ha not handling more intense loads or probably a better example would be playing a match, a fut futsal, they go, that really sets me off, but running's fine. We, we can start to identify where we might be able to build some more resilience do we know how that works? No, um, we don't have a, a, a linear sort of model of we do this, it gets better. You know, we do this plyometric types exercise and it does build load, but we do see a pattern that it, that it does in people and that's enough to, to point them in that direction. That's great. And that kind of, uh, 
helps us guide and frame our interventions. So going from what they can currently do at the moment and what they want to build up to. So then we have a process centered framework to look at rather than looking at trying to solve or fix a problem or trying to see a current presentation as having one, one issue or one thing that we can kind of fix or use at the person. Mm. And in terms of, so, so you mentioned the subjectives in terms of the ob objectives, how in for looking into it uh, through a, an active model and an active process, looking at knowing that we can't reduce an entire presentation to, to one factor, but still wanting to kind of manage expectations. What are some of the objectives that you use in your practice as a podiatrist? Objectives is in like an objective examination. Yeah. Oh, that's quite tricky because it's very, very, it's very context dependent because whenever you set an objective um, examination that you, that you do or an objective examination that your objective sort of test you want to get better, um, it's assuming we've got to be aware that we can't assume that that's going to lead to a better outcome for the patient in terms of their pain, unless we have research that specifically backs that and says, Hey, yes, this does actually, we get better, um, uh, results. A classic one was a neo a study where they inject, they got this new injectable that increased cartilage, uh, in the knee and the bone structure and, and everything. And it didn't, didn't do anything for pain. It's kind of like, mm. um, Great, and that's been a whole focus of everything. And we'll link um, that in the in the show notes as well for for the listeners. I, I should I should warn. I have I've only read the abstract of that study. It looks it's a drug study, and I was like, eh. but I think it was in the best case scenario, it did nothing. Um, if you believe the they're they're going to pump up their abstracts. Um, in terms of objectives, I think it very much depends upon the patient and. Not so much what they think is important, but really trying to understand where they want to go and what they want to do. Easy examples of runners or any sort of athlete because you can go, well, you're having trouble with running or this type of exercise or, or what's happening. We can some, set some objectives of how do we get you better um, at running? How do we get you stronger? How do we get you um, more resilient? And we can sort of set some exercise-based goals and say, this is our goal to try and get you there with the idea of saying, well, we're, at the same time we're trying to improve your performance, we're seeing if this has an impact on your pain and we're going to use this as a guide. So we're still heading in a positive direction for you and we're guiding you there and we see what this impact this has at the same, at the same time. So for example, someone with a tendinopathy and is doing a cutting sport, it will be our objectives are going to be more of how they go hopping. So my, my objective might be getting them hopping again. Uh, I, I don't always see a relationship between being able to hop and pain. Uh, we can't always make that assumption, but I go, well, if they can do that more, it means that they can then get back to their sport more. And so that's, that's sort of what I, I look at when I think about objectives i think about find something that a patient wants to do and frame it in that perspective of we're going to get you better at this and along the pathway we see what this does for you so all the non-podiatrists listening right now it's funny how similar the objectives can be for everyone in the musculoskeletal space so we're finding out what that person wants with the special test is their goal as opposed to trying to initially 
uh, assess posture, range of motion, going through special tests. We're going into the, the whole purpose of those tests, if needed, would be to get them back into the activities that they would want to do if pain wasn't an issue. Am I, am I on the right track? That's what I, was, what I was hearing is basing it off the person rather than their, their diagnosis or their, what they've been told um, they need to fix. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's changing the focus from, a tr from essentially um, assuming that a diagnosis within itself has enough information to, to actually create a treatment plan off or even just assuming that the things that caused a, um, uh, an injury are the same things that resulted. Because, I mean, when we, when we, I always sort of go back to, you know, if someone breaks their ankle, you, you, don't, you can't get rid of, or the treatment, the, the diagnosis may impact treatment to a certain degree but you know getting rid of risk factors what was the risk factor for their ankle like getting rid of those does nothing for their current treatment and often uh, a diagnosis of a fracture doesn't doesn't actually give you the enough information to go whether this person uh what type of boot that you go in how off how quickly they can reload it it does will guide to a certain extent but there's other factors um like if someone's incredibly scared of putting weight on their foot that's going to completely change how you manage that, especially you know, in the early stages of acute fracture management, you think risk factors for CRPS and a lot of other things, um, we sort of that will change what you what you do beyond just immobilizer. That's interesting. So it's so even with a specific diagnosis, they would still need to look at the entire picture. Mm. Ex exactly. Exactly. So, Alex, it's been awesome chatting to you about these, these issues. And it's, and it's fascinating how there's so many similarities between what we, so what EPs do, what physios do, what every allied health professional does. We're looking at the entire picture and we're not trying to just figure out one kind of solution to, to a multifactorial problem. So for listeners again, if they wanted to find out a bit more about you, where can they, where can they find out? Uh, so I have, a, I have a few few places, Facebook and Instagram, uh, Making Sense in, in, in Podiatry, uh, in, in the search box. Um, they'll come up pretty quickly. It's a, it's a foot as a logo. I've also got makingsenseinpodiatry.com as a, as a fairly sparse website at the moment, but it's where I do put a couple of bits of, of writing. Uh, I've got one up there, which is, which is tolerating uncertainty, which I think is really fits in with, with this sort of topic because there is so much uncertainty in in this um but yeah that's that's where you find me awesome so thanks so much for your time alex and until next time and we'll, we'll link the uh the studies that we mentioned in the show notes as well awesome thanks for having me